did you hear that? Dude, it's a hoarding marmot. Looking for that last minute piece of kit before heading into the hills? Stop by the hoarding marmot, Anchorage's finest outdoor consignment shop, located in the heart of Spinard. The Hoarding Marmot has everything you need from high-end mountaineering equipment, cross-country and downhill ski gear, plus a fine selection of local guidebooks, maps, and yummy trail snacks. Stop by the Hoarding Marmot next time you're in town, or check them out online at hoardingmarmot.com. The Fernline is supported by the Alaska Rock Gym. Providing quality indoor climbing to the Anchorage community since 1995, Alaska Rock Gym sports 20,000 square feet of climbing, an entire floor of boulder terrain, beautiful locker rooms, plus expanded cardio fitness and yoga rooms. Whether you're looking to on-site that burly 512 at your local crag or training for a speedy ascent of the Cassine Ridge on Denali, the Alaska Rock Gym has something for everyone. Stop by anytime to take a tour of the facility or check them out at alaskarockgym.com. Just a quick note, the Alaska Rock Gym is still currently closed due to the local Anchorage COVID-19 restrictions. They're hoping to be opened up sometime soon, so the best thing to do is just keep in touch on their website or follow them on Instagram, and you can know when they're going to open up as soon as possible. All right. Hey friends, I'm Evan Phillips, and you're listening to The Fern Line, a podcast about the lives of mountain climbers. In season four, I'm talking with alpinists and climbers about resilience, the monumental challenges they face in and out of the mountains, and the solutions they find to move forward in the face of adversity. My goal is to have meaningful conversations with extraordinary people, the folks who choose to live full value lifestyles in some of the most beautiful and wild regions on the planet. All right, well, it's great to be back with you for another episode of The Fern Line. Summertime's in full swing right here in South Central Alaska. The trees are budding and the birds are singing, and it's a welcome change after a very long winter. Hey, just a few things before we dive into today's episode. If this is your first time or you're a longtime listener to The Fern Line, there's a few ways you can help out. You can become a monthly subscriber over on Patreon, where you can get early access to episodes and content, stickers and other merch, and even some of the original music I produce for the show. To become a subscriber, just head on over to thefernline.com and click on the Support the Fernline tab. You can also leave a review over on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And finally, you can just tell someone directly, because word of mouth is the best way to get information out there. Tell your friends, your climbing partners, people you think might dig the fern line. Let them know it's out there. All right. So with that, it's time to grab your favorite beverage and get cozy on your couch, camp chair, or next to the back porch grill and settle in for this episode of the fern line. At the end of the day, uh, 
it's what we learn, you know, uh, what we learn about ourselves, you know, what we learn about understanding what it really means, you know, what partnership really means. On today's episode of The Fern Line, we'll get to know legendary North American alpinist Steve Swenson. Over the course of a climbing career that has spanned a remarkable 50 years, Steve has left a lasting imprint on the world stage of alpinism. From his roots in the Pacific Northwest, all the way to the seven and 8,000 meter giants of the Himalaya and the Pakistani Karakoram. His early climbs in the Canadian Rockies, which included an astounding list of classic North faces in the 1970s, set the stage for other first ascents in Alaska and beyond. But it was Steve's love for the greater ranges, specifically in the Karakoram, that became the biggest alpine pull in his life. Starting with a number of attempts in the early 1980s on Gasherbrum 4, Steve continually refined his style and his partnerships to make a sense of giants like K2, Everest, and most recently, one of the highest unclimbed peaks in the world, Linksar. I recently got a chance to speak with Steve about his enduring alpine career. We talked about his early climbs as a youngster, growing up in the Pacific Northwest, as well as his new book, Karakoram, Climbing Through the Kashmir Conflict, which was released by Mountaineers Books in 2017. We started out by talking about Steve's inspirations as a kid, and although he didn't grow up in a particularly adventurous family, it was his curiosity at the local library that would pique his interest and set the stage for a life of exploration and adventure. Yeah, well, I, I grew up in Seattle. My family didn't really do any strenuous outdoor activity like skiing or backpacking or climbing or anything like that. It would mean as kids we we went on family car camping trips, but nothing really any more adventuresome than that. But when I was probably about hard to remember exactly, but I bet I was in about second or third grade, so I would have been seven or eight years old, I got quite interested in uh you know, explorers of the planet, you know, Antarctic and Arctic explorers and mountain climbers and uh, divers and, you know, these people that to me personified, uh, you know, going out and and exploring and having adventures at extreme, you know, places in our planet that were hard to get to, you know, where no one had been before. And, you know, when I was that age, you know, I was eight or nine years old, uh, I would go to the library and uh, the librarian there kind of got to know me because I would, ended up in the adult nonfiction section when I was pretty small uh, looking for books, you know, about Amundsen and Scott and Shackleton and Mawson and Jacques Cousteau and people like that. And I couldn't really reach the books on the shelves, you know, that I wanted because uh, I was too small. And the librarian would come around and help me and and would make recommendations. And I didn't always get through, you know, when you're that young trying to get through a three or 400 page um, adult nonfiction book when you were an early reader, you know, was a big chore. Uh, you know, that was a big job. And I didn't always finish them, but, uh, you know, I have to return them in a month and I get other ones. And 
you know, books really sparked, you know, my interest in uh, exploration and adventure, you know, and a lot of that excitement and inspiration, you know, would just be these fantasies in my mind. But growing up in Seattle, you know, there was some access to mountains and in 1963, when the Americans climbed Everest, I would have been nine years old. So I saw, you know, my parents had a subscription to National Geographic. So I saw all those pictures and, and I, I, and I was just like, oh, oh, that, that's what I want to do. I want to do that. That looks really cool. Uh, you know, and uh, the closest I could get to getting out in the mountains was uh, a f- grade school friend of mine was in a Boy Scout troop. Uh, in the neighborhood and they went on backpacking trips in the in the Cascades and so as soon as I was 11 which was as young as you could uh, be to be in the Boy Scouts uh, I joined their troop and and I was fortunate to um, to have uh, gotten involved with a with a Boy Scout troop that was pretty active and well organized they had a really good committee of of parents and the and the dads who are we you know we had outings every month uh, we had 50 mile hikes every summer uh, we had boy scout camp you know we were doing you know snow camping in the winter time building snow caves and igloos and and then when i got to be 14 in that Boy Scout troop, one of the dads started taking us climbing. His friends of a basic mountaineering course sort of patterned after, you know, the curriculum that uh, the Mountaineers was using at the time for their basic courses. And and so that my first uh, summer climbing, when I was 14, we, we were pretty active. We climbed like... Uh, Mount St. Helens, that was before it blew up, and Mount Baker, you know, all the volcanoes. We climbed Mount Rainier. We climbed Mount Olympus out in Olympic National Park uh, all in my first summer of climbing, and I was completely hooked. Yeah, I mean, how old are you? You were like 14? 14, yeah. It seems like if I would have been 14 and climbing those prominent peaks in the Pacific Northwest, it probably would have made an impression on me too. Like that sounds like some pretty serious adventure. It was so exciting for me. I couldn't remember uh, back in those days, uh, you know, we were climbing Mount Rainier from the east side up the um, inner glacier to Camp Sherman and then up the Emmons Glacier to the top. And back in those days, uh, you could sleep in the hut at at Camp Sherman. Now that's not allowed. They have uh, that that's... Uh, that hut they used for the rangers used that but i remember sleeping in the hut there and i was so excited i couldn't i didn't sleep a wink all night i was just <laughs> i just wanted to i just wanted to get going in the morning and climb this thing that you know i grew up looking at from seattle and it, it just seemed like such a incredible adventure you know i it's cool you know because i don't think that kind of excitement about climbing. I don't think I've ever lost it, really. I think that it's just something that has, you know, really inspired me and and uh, given me the, the drive to want to organize my life and stay fit and do the things that I would need to do to kind of do it as long as I have, which at this point, I, uh, 2020, I've been climbing for 52 years. <laughs> that's, a, that's a nice long career. Yeah, it's not over yet. I know, I know. So, um, I hope. so what happened? Uh, what happened after that summer when you got to climb all those Cascade peaks? Um, 
What what happened after that as far as your adventuring and climbing? Well, I was in high school then, and in high school it was hard for me to find partners other than some of the uh, other guys that I was in the Boy Scout troop with when I was in high school because I was still doing that because the climbing sort of was a strong pull to stay involved in scouting through high school because we were doing really pretty cool stuff in the outdoors for for my age you know with a group like that and uh, uh, but the partners that I had the kind of climbing we were doing was as a boy scout was just real general mountaineering glacier climbing like on Mount Rainier or the volcanoes um, we did a little bit of rock peaks uh, but nothing more difficult than fourth class and I really wanted to get into technical rock climbing and I really didn't have partners to do that with and I really didn't have any of the adults that were in our Boy Scout troop who really did any technical rock climbing either. So I started getting interested in things that the group that I was involved with didn't do and really couldn't do. So back then, that was in the um, late 60s, early 70s, and you know, it was kind of the height of sort of big wall climbing in Yosemite. And there were mag- Summit Magazine had all these articles when it was still going back then about, you know, rock climbing and El Capitan and all. And I got really excited about that stuff. So my high school friends and I, we started going out to Index, uh, town wall there east of Seattle. And uh, back then, most of those climbs were still aid climbs. It's all free climbing now, but back in the late 60s, early 70s, a lot of that was still, you know, free climbing standards had not developed to that level yet. And so we started going out there and and doing um, aid climbing and technical rock climbing with my high school friends, but it was pretty limited. It wasn't until I got out of high school and I started at, uh, at the University of Washington in the fall of 1972 that I joined their, they had a climbing club there at the University of Washington that was quite active. And I met a whole slew of people my age or a few years older because some of them were upperclassmen. And the difference between, you know, an 18-year-old freshman and, you know, 21 or 22-year-old senior in terms of what you could do and your access to transportation and your experience, it could be a lot, you know, and some of those older undergraduates there that in the club took me under their wing and I started climbing with them. And uh, the first summer after my freshman year in the university, I went up with uh, three of those guys and we climbed the north face of Mount Robson in the Canadian Rockies in 1973. And I think we probably did the third ascent of the North Face of Robson, second or third ascent of the North Face of Robson. And that was the first time I climbed outside of the Cascades and in an alpine climbing setting that was more, it wasn't just a big volcano. It was, this was like a steep, you know, real mountain like you would, you would have in the Alps or, you know, and, and it was a steep face and, and much more involved and, 
and it was another big step for me. So once I got into university and I had access to a club that had people there who who had more experience than I did, you know, as alpine climbers, it that opened up another whole realm of climbing to me and and that's when we started climbing uh, every summer I would climb in the Canadian Rockies for about 6 weeks and and then within a year or two then we started going on expeditions to Alaska right very very cool um I I love talking about the Canadian Rockies <laughs> but uh can you talk just a little bit more about that time period of like what you were doing? Because I, I, I know a lot of my listeners on this show, um, you know, you talk about a peak like Mount Robson. I mean, it's just an absolutely just a stunning, beautiful, um, striking mountain really from any side. And, you know, for a lot of people climbing something like the Cane Face or the North Face on Robson would be a real highlight in a career and it's interesting. It sounds like that's kind of what kicked your climbing career off, really. What do you remember about the Canadian Rockies? It sounds like you were drawn to that range from an early age. Yeah, I mean, I climbed when I climbed the North Face of Robson. I was nineteen, and uh, when we were done uh, with that, um, there was. Um, I remember we were hiking out and we were just hiking the last little bit from Kinney Lake out to the to the road and there was a woman, older woman, she was well into her 80s at the time who ran this um lodging facility there and and horse packing outfitter called the Robson Ranch and and the Robson Ranch was very historical back in the day before there was a highway through there. Uh, people that would come to Mount Robson, the train would go by the nearby the ranch, and uh, there was they would just stop in the middle of the track, and people would get off the train, and somebody from the ranch would pick them up, and they would take them on horseback up the Kinney Lake, and then up to Berg Lake before the below the north side of Mount Robson, and so she had been running that ranch since you know for several generations i think it was in her family phyllis and don monday were real famous early explorers uh in british columbia of the coast range they did the first ascent i believe of mount waddington or the early attempts actually i don't know if they did the first ascent or not i'd have to look that up but they did certainly early attempts on mount they, they kind of discovered mount waddington you know by seeing it from vancouver island and they they you know took their boats up the coast and in the inlet to the Franklin Glacier and they bushwhacked up to the glacier and got to Mount Waddington that way and and before we went climb Mount Robson Don Monday had passed away by then but Phyllis was still there and I think she was like 88 or 89 and here I'm 19 and I'm so excited about the mountains and we have this dinner family style at the Robson Ranch with some of their guests and the four of us you know who are going off to try to climb the North Face and afterwards Phyllis gives the slideshow using these old glass slides of her and Don's early exploring of Mount Waddington and here's this like 89 year old woman talking about how you know had had the 
enthusiasm and attitude of somebody who it seemed to me was like 20 years old. You know, she was so excited talking about it and talked about, you know, back then they didn't wear any helmets and a rock came down and hit her on the head. And she was talking about, oh, yeah, the rock hit me on the head and I had the blood was coming down my face. And <laughs> but it was OK. We kept going. And <laughs> and and I and I was just like so blown away because it was like I had never really been around people like this i i hadn't really grown up in in mountain culture you know with people like this and i'm i was just like these are the people i want to be around you know in my life and uh, after we climbed mount robson and we were hiking back out and we were crossing this bridge over you know the river that comes down from kinney lake and and not too far from the car the woman that ran the 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 uh, um Robson Ranch uh, hiked up to meet us. Somehow she knew we had climbed it. And, and she came up to me and she goes, well, what are you going to do next? And I said, well, I'd met these guys there that I was going to leave my other friends and go with them up to the Columbia Icefields. And I said, oh, I'm going to go up there to the Columbia Icefields and try to climb some other routes here this summer. I've got some time. And, and then she just looked at me and she goes, ah, nothing but a north face for you now. appetite for climbing kindled, Steve wasted no time getting into the business. And for him, it started in the Canadian Rockies, where in the early and mid-1970s, he ticked off a number of impressive North Faces, including Assiniboine, Edith Cavell, and the second ascent of the North Face of Alberta with Kit Lewis. He also started going to Alaska, where he made the first ascent of Mount Salisbury in Glacier Bay, as well as ascents of the Pioneer and Cassine Ridges on Denali, to name a few. But in the bigger picture, these trips were mere stepping stones for the deeper adventures that awaited in the greater ranges of the world. growing up in the Cascades and then kind of the next level for me was climbing in the Canadian Rockies and then kind of the next level really was climbing in Alaska. It was all sort of, for me, it was sort of preparation for climbing in the Great Ranges because, you know, that was kind of my early inspiration, you know, when I was like nine years old and saw, you know, pictures of Americans on Everest. And, you know, to me, uh, I grew up during, in the 60s, when I was a little kid, grew up during the space race and you know the astronauts were were the big heroes and that seemed like the ultimate adventure in a way is going off into outer space but that wasn't going to happen for me I mean to me it was like going into the mountains here was like the closest I could get to like being on another planet and 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 the highest mountains in the world you know was was sort of my those were my earliest inspiration and and uh and from Alaska, that's, you know, that's, that's where I wanted to go next. Right. 
again, before we move on, kind of just from that uh, time period of your life, like who who were some of your early kind of Alpine influences and, and who were some of your partners who kind of, when you look back on that time of your life were like, man, those were, those were really valuable experiences and partnerships for me. Yeah. Well, we, the, the, the people that I climbed with back then were all friends from Seattle. Cause, uh, that was sort of my, my circle of contacts at the time and people I could get out with and people that I met at the university of Washington and friends of theirs. And, I was climbing with um, people like Todd Bibbler, who who uh, moved to Colorado later, and then now lives in Bishop, who people might know from the Bibbler tent. Uh, and when we were climbing in college with Todd, Todd was developing his very early prototypes of the of the eye tent. I think I had one of the first or second ones that he made that we were using on these climbs in Alaska, especially. And Jim Nelson, Craig McKibben, another friend of mine, Dave Seaman, Matt Kearns, you know, the Fredrickson brothers, He's got, they were from Tacoma. They were all my partners back in the 70s, you know, kind of leading up to when I start climbing uh, in South Asia. Right. And then... Uh, I do want to just uh, talk about just kind of some of your early trips in Alaska. What I know you had mentioned you'd done the casino, you'd climbed Denali twice. What were some other kind of Alaska trips that, that really stood out to you, I guess, looking back on them? Yeah, I mean, though, you know, the two climbs on Denali, then the the first ascent that I mentioned on Mount Salisbury in southeast Alaska were the main uh, trips that I did in Alaska before going off to Asia. Uh, I also made a couple of attempts to try to do a new route on Mount Huntington, which uh, we failed on, but, uh, you know, learned a lot, which is a mountain I actually have never climbed yet. That's still kind of on on my list of mountains that um, I'd like to do. It's such a beautiful mountain. I guess let's just maybe transition into talking about some of the climbs in Asia. When when did that happen for you? When did you start going over there? Well, my first trip to uh, South Asia was to the Karakoram and to Pakistan in 1980. And uh, I put together a group uh, of all my Seattle friends that I'd been going to Alaska with primarily to try to climb a new route on Gasherbrum 4. And we didn't realize at the time that you know, what a huge leap that was. Going from something like the Cassine Ridge on Denali to a new route on Gasherbrum 4 was a leap in knowledge and expertise that we didn't understand and, and, and that we didn't have. Gasherbrum 4 still remains as one of the most difficult mountains in in you know high mountains in the world to climb and has still probably seen less than you know or right around maybe a half a dozen ascents so i think we did a really good job with a group of close friends organizing a trip to uh, a faraway place that at that time you know there weren't all the the adventure tour companies there that you could just pay them a lump sum and they would run the whole trip for you though they didn't exist the care quorum had been closed because of the cashmere conflict for most of the previous decade and 
after it reopened, the infrastructure for tourism was quite primitive, and you pretty much had to do everything yourself. And for us, not having been there before, it's like trying to learn how to do it while you're doing it. And going up to Gasherum 4, I mean, it's just logistically complicated and expensive because it's a long way up to those mountains at the head of the Baltoro Glacier from the last village. So you have to hire porters to carry food for the porters. So if you have 50 loads of uh, food and equipment that has to go to base camp, you start out with 100 porters because you need one porter to carry food for the other porter that's going to go all the way. And as you're eating the food, as you're hiking along, then you lay off porters along the way. And figuring out the logistics of that and where to spend each night and porters coming up to you with all kinds of problems and getting through the permitting process and just learning all about how to do this was was a pretty substantial, you know, learning process, uh, you know, for all of us to begin with. And then, then once we got onto the mountain, we ended up getting to about 7,000 meters on the mountain, which I thought was quite an accomplishment for our first trip on such a difficult peak. But uh, it kind of felt like a lot of work and a lot of hiking around and a lot of effort with not much climbing. Right. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, going away from it, it was a little bit hard for me to kind of reconcile that, uh, that, you know, gee, I just spent, you know, a year or two of my life sort of planning this and then several months doing it. And there wasn't that much real climbing involved. There was a lot of, lot of big glacier travel and going up snow slope, but the, the actual real kind of technical climbing that we thought we'd get into, we had very little of it because when we got into that, that was about as far as we got. <laughs> but I really enjoyed it. I think I came away from it with uh, a real love of the people, got really hooked on, you know, the adventure uh, of climbing in such a um, remote part of the world with, uh, you know, a culture uh, that was so different than what I was used to, and mountains that uh, were several orders of magnitude bigger than anything I'd seen in uh, any place else in the world. So I, I really do feel that although it was kind of a frustration to not do as much as we would have liked on that first trip and to be so overwhelmed by, by it, that I did know in the back of my mind that this is what I wanted to do. a hard thing to deal with, but it can also be the greatest learning tool for an alpinist. And this was certainly the case for Steve. Although he hadn't been successful on Gasherbrum 4, he used those learning experiences as an opportunity to refine his approach and style. And for him, that meant approaching the big mountains with a sense of adventure, climbing with small, self-sufficient teams, and climbing predominantly in alpine style. 
you know, what I learned out of the first two trips that I went to South Asia is I always <laughs> great friends from Seattle and from the Northwest. But really for that kind of climbing, I needed to cast my net further afield because it takes a different kind of person, you know, who really has the disposition and desire and experience and, you know, motivation to want to to do these mountains where, like I said before, you know, you really don't do that much climbing and you've got all this permitting and porters and logistics and you know, all these things just till you get there. And then when you get there, you're going to be there for a long time. So you have to be comfortable with being away from, you know, your family and your loved ones for that long a period of time where you're experiencing significant hardship. And all those things together, it, you know, after those first two trips, I realized that, you know, I really didn't have the right partners yet. They were great partners for the other things that I had done with them, but that wasn't necessarily uh, the kind of thing that I could see that they were probably going to do that much of in the future. And I needed to, you know, kind of of find a different group. And I had an opportunity in 1986 to go to the Northridge of K2 with a group of climbers that I didn't know that well, but I knew of them. They were people like Alex Lowe, George Lowe, Dave Cheesman, Greg Cron, you know, all these people had extensive experience in mountains around the world, you know, and I felt like this was going to be a good opportunity, not only to go to a mountain I was really interested in, but also to build relationships with people that I that I felt was kind of uh, more the crowd that I needed to get involved with if I wanted to do this kind of climbing. So that was a long trip, the north side of K2. You go in from the Chinese side and you have to walk down this river, the Shaxgam River, uh, early in the summer when the river isn't full of snowmelt yet. And then you get to the mountain and uh, the, with these camels that take all of your equipment in there. And then uh, the river floods during the, the peak of the runoff in July and part early part of August, and you're trapped in there. So it... it which actually really appealed to me because <laughs> there's no helicopter equipment in that part of China. So you I mean it might as you might as well be Eric Shipton in 1938, you know, on his blank on the map expedition where you're going in there uh, uh, because uh, you're completely cut off from the rest of the world. And this was before satellite phones or anything like that, so you had to be completely self-sufficient. And it was interesting for me to get, you know, working with a bigger group like that. You know, I didn't know George at all or Alex uh, or David. They were kind of the the lead climbers on that trip to begin with. And I kind of had to prove myself to them. And that ended up being a good experience, you know, for me. I ended up, you know, doing pretty well on it. I was pretty strong and and, uh, able to keep up with those guys and I think they had respect for me and as it turned out you know Alex Lowe and I we made a summit attempt and actually got to well over 8,000 meters uh, but turned around because the time of day and snow conditions and we could see a big storm was approaching us and and we went down that was my first attempt on K2 I went back to K2 again immediately the next year in 87 because my friend Greg Child, who had moved to Seattle, who had met 
in the Care Corman 83 um, and had been climbing with in, in Seattle, he and I uh, had organized this trip to Gashabrum 4 in 1986 that I dropped out of to go to K2. But those guys went to Gashabrum 4 and climbed it. And then I was just like, oh, man, I should have gone with them because they <laughs> climbed it and we didn't climb K2. Um, and then Greg was going to go to K2 in 87. And I'm like, said to Greg, like, well, I'd like to go with you guys to K2 in 87 because I would really be bummed out if you guys climbed Gashroom 4 in 86 when we didn't climb K2. And then you go climb K2 in 87 and 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 I'm not there to go with you, you know. And and so I went with, with, uh, with them and that was a really kind of a cool trip because you know Doug Scott at that time was one of the real uh he was a you know 10 or 12 years 15 years I don't know but older than me but it were really one of the real pioneers and you know climbing in the Himalayas alpine style and so our trip to K2 and both my previous trips to Gashbroom 4 in 80 and 83, you know, we'd been fixing rope or at least rope for part of it. And Doug was, you know, completely no, no, fixed, no fixed rope. We're just climbing Alpine style. And it really gave me a sense of freedom, you know, like how we could run around on the mountain and really cover lots of terrain if you were fit. You know, and not having all the encumbrance of fixing the rope and how exhausting that was. and But we had really terrible weather that year, and we never, again, really made it much above 7,000 meters. And But but two of the people on that trip, Greg Child and Phil Urschler, you know, we were uh, both from Seattle uh, at the time, kind of hung in there kind of till the very end. Most of the rest of the people left for various reasons. And uh, the three of us kind of formed a pretty close partnership and decided as we were flying back that we wanted to you know go back to k2 and uh i brought it up on the plane uh, that we had to go back and and those guys were like whoa you're talking about that already and i go oh yeah yeah we needed we need to do this and uh and i said we should go back to the north side because the pakistan side uh there's just a lot more people a lot more had been done the north side from where and i was there and 86 was so much more wild and so much more of an adventure uh and i said we should go back there and and we finally got it organized enough uh it took us a couple three years to get that together to go in 1990 um where the four of us uh, were the we had some other uh support people along with us but for the most part the the, well, really, it was just the four of us did all the climbing on it. We fixed ropes for about half of the 7,000 meters, and above that, we just uh, we climbed alpine style or used old pieces of fixed line that were still left over from previous expeditions. Uh, some of it uh, being um, old fixed rope from that we'd put there in 1986, and uh, we managed to climb it this time. And uh, so that was really my first big success you know in south asia i you know, after 10 years i mean my first trip was there in 1980 and and the first real big success was the north ridge of k2 in 1990 after you know what was that one two three you know four or five trips you know to to the great ranges and uh it, it, i i I look back on that and I, I, I write about that in my book as just being a really important time because I feel like 
I really spent the time to learn about how to climb mountains that big. Uh, they're, they're of a magnitude that's so much bigger than anything that um, you know we had in North America. And learning how to break things down in pieces, learning about the kind of partners that I needed to have, you know, learning about climatization and how to live at extreme altitude you know, just took a while. And I, and I feel like we did take our time, you know, we were willing to fail. And, uh, t- and until we got to where we felt like we understood it well enough to take the risk to go all the way to the summit and, you know, get down and get down alive. Right. Can you describe being up above 8,000 meters on the north ridge of K2 and, and going for it with just like the serious lack of oxygen and just like the day after day of just like suffering in those challenging conditions. I mean, what is that like? You know, when you get that high and you are, you know, you know, moving, trying to move quickly and you're using all that training that you've put in. I mean, you're, you're very, very hypoxic. I think that if, I mean, I didn't do it, you know, but if you took a oxygen saturation meter and put it on your finger, you know, like on a summit day on K2 or Everest, uh, if you're climbing without oxygen, I don't know what the percentage would be, but <laughs> it might be down in the 70s. You yeah. know, I, I don't know what it would be. I, I yeah. didn't measure it. But but it would be the kind of thing that if if they rolled you in any kind of emergency room uh, in, in a hospital uh, and and they threw the, the oxygen saturation meter on you and saw that uh, that's what your saturation levels were. They would they would they would be very very worried about you. They would right. think you were that, <laughs> that that you were dying or something. And so you're operating at these blood oxygen levels that are you know to a healthcare professional would be you know very concerning. And I think the the effect that has on you is that everything slows down. It's good to have a really good plan before you get into that situation because if you have to think too much about um, having to change your plan, that's hard to do. It's better to like kind of, you know, have a plan and stick with it to where you don't have to think about it and just kind of execute on it as opposed to like standing around thinking about, oh, what should we, you know, what should we do here now? Um, uh, Because you're liable to either take too long to make the decision or make a wrong decision. It's it's kind of like somebody's like pulled this uh, veil over your brain, like this this little bit of a cloudy veil over your brain. Your thinking and the way you process things, it's not sharp. It's a little bit fuzzy, um, and um, it's it's like being on some kind of crazy drug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And maybe that's all kind of part of the experience, you know, when you get up to the top and you're kind of playing this game with yourself all day, you know, where you're always kind of having to ask yourself, you know, if you're okay, you know, how are my fingers? How are my toes? How's my breathing? How's my head? Is it, it's fuzzy? Yeah, of course, you know, it's going to be fuzzy. You're hypoxic, but do you have a headache? You know, you know, you're just kind of carrying on this conversation with yourself the whole time and, and, and trying to be honest with yourself about whether or not you're starting to experience a problem that should tell you that you better get, get out of there right away. I mean, like this might be a hard question to answer um, because I know a lot of times you can't really process things until you get down from the peak, but 
I mean, how did it, and I guess you can talk about it in that context. I'm just curious how it felt for you to have climbed K2. What did that mean to you? It was kind of a relief. Yeah, um, I got I up. <laughs> I I got up there ahead of the other guys. I mean, I had a turnaround time. Uh, Phil Urschler had turned around at about oh eighty one, eighty two hundred meters, and so then it was the two Gregs, Rick Child and and Greg uh, Mortimer, another Australian, and me. And I'm pretty strict about my turnaround time because I feel like if you're not fast enough to get up within a reasonable time that means you're not strong enough to be doing what you're doing and then that that's kind of the canary in the coal mine that if you're not going uh, fast enough then it takes too long and then you get that much more tired then then you can quickly get into a a situation where you're not going to be able to get yourself back down you haven't left enough gas in the tank to to get back down so i was pretty eager to get to the top so i i went ahead of the other guys uh i moved ahead of them and got to the top maybe oh five or ten minutes before they did and i just spent a couple minutes there as as a storm was moving in actually uh and then and uh, I just turned around and met those guys on the way down. And I, I didn't feel any sense of exhilaration then. I really, I was scared. Uh, um, I saw the storm moving in. We're at the top of this mountain. We, I had to down climb, you know, several thousand feet, you know, unroped uh, on terrain that if, if you screwed up, uh, that would be the end. And uh, so um, getting back to our high camp uh, was, was all I could think about. And then those other guys got to the top, spent more time up there than I did, did some filming, and they got back to uh, the tent after dark, maybe about an hour after I did. And uh, the next day, we, we ended, then we ended up having to spend a couple of days uh, descending the rest of the mountain. But when we got low on the mountain to where at this point, you know, the storm had enveloped the peak and we descended down out of the clouds. Uh, once we got below about 19,000 feet, we could see down to the glacier and we could see some of these other people support team members that we had. We had a couple Pakistani guys that were uh, cooking for us at our advanced base camp. They were walking up to meet us and then I could see that we were going to be okay. And at that moment, it was a very emotional experience for me. It was kind of overwhelming. I was just, we had some fixed rope down there low and I was just hanging on to the, to the, um, to the fixed rope and I just started weeping. Since Steve's climb of K2, there have been many more ascents, each with their own important life experiences, lessons, and most importantly, friendships. And this might be most exemplified by one of Steve's most recent ascents, where he, alongside Mark Ritchie, Graham Zimmerman, and Chris Wright, made the first ascent of Linksar, which at the time in 2019 was one of the highest unclimbed peaks in the world. I asked Steve to talk about this experience and to touch on the creative process of writing his book, Karakoram, Climbing Through the Kashmir Conflict. (laughs) 
maybe the trip that in many ways to me has seemed in many ways the most satisfying was the success we just had last summer on Linksar. Right. What I've learned from all of this is that, you know, these summits are not important, really, that, you know, you know, getting to the, you know, a physical GPS point on the globe uh, itself is is not the most important thing, really. You know, I might have been weeping, you know, after well, from all the emotion of climbing K2, you know, back in 1990. But all that emotion wasn't because of standing on some particular spot on the planet. It was really all everything that had gone into it you know it was my third attempt i'd spent probably almost a year of my life there you know and 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 so at the end of the day uh, it's what we learn you know uh, what we learn about ourselves you know what we learn about understanding what it really means you know what partnership really means um understanding you know how important failure is you know understanding um you know, the complexity of Linksar was such a complicated mountain. It had all of these uh, twists and turns to it, you know, in the route, you know, to find a safe way up the peak. And I just so thoroughly enjoyed the team that we had. Graham Zimmerman, Chris Wright, Mark Ritchie, um, and me. Uh, I think just the way that we worked together on it, um, everybody was really concerned. We really took care of each other. No one ever felt like, you know, if you're walking up the glacier that day and you're just not feeling um, as strong as maybe the day before, nobody ever felt like they couldn't say anything. You could just turn to the rest of the group and say, hey, you know, I'm not feeling it today. I'm just going to take it a little bit slower, you know, and you're on the rope with other people, you know, and then everybody would just say, great, fine, you know, let's, there was no competition. There was just none of that. It was all real supportive. Everybody brought some expertise to the the trip that we ended up needing. Um, right. If if one of the four people wasn't there, we, we probably wouldn't have climbed it because that key piece of either understanding or ability we wouldn't have and, and we would have failed. Or we would have made a mistake or somebody could have got hurt. Or, But, you know, the way we did the decision-making, you know, it was so, you know, people would bring up ideas, we'd kick them around. And the between the four of us, we had, had 127 years of climbing experience. That's not life. That's not our ages. That's how many years between the four of us we had climbing. And between Mark and me, it was on. That's almost a hundred. Um, and that's a lot. <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, it was just so satisfying to you know, have a group like that, you know, that was so supportive of each other. Everybody was so psyched to want to climb the peak. Everybody worked really hard and everybody was, you know, knew kind of what they were subject matter expert in, given what we were doing and would step forward at the right time. And the other people would step back and let them do that and not feel like somehow they were any lesser or any greater. And coming down off the mountain, we were sitting around at our advanced space camp, you know, talking about what we had just done. And I just said to everyone that, you know, you know, I don't really... To me, getting to top of this peak, you know, felt good, but what really felt the most satisfying to me was really to kind of share that experience with my partners, you know, kind of how we did it together, because it was as close to perfection I've ever experienced.
That's amazing. That's really cool. I appreciate you uh, sharing that. I would love to talk to you about um, your book a little bit. And I guess what I want to know is, why did you write the book? And and I'd like to talk a little bit about what that creative process uh, was like for you. Well, I had an opportunity with my business, you know, where um, when I was 55, so that was uh, 11 years ago, I was part owner in an engineering consulting, management consulting firm. Uh, we had about 500 employees and they had about 50 owners. I was one of the owners. And we sold the firm to a much bigger firm. And when I sold all my shares to them, I basically decided that I wanted to retire and just spend more time in the mountains and doing some different things and learning some different things. And one of the things that had been in the back of my mind that I never had time to do was to do some writing. Uh, I think a frustration for me had been, you know, all these years I'd been doing these trips and I think there, I thought, I felt there was all these kind of cool stories that would be fun to try to tell. Um, but there, I just had no time when, when I was, you know, had a full-time job and a family and trying to do the kind of climbing I was doing, it was, I was pretty maxed out. And so I had all these journals. I'd kept pretty good journals, at least with factual information and dates and people. And um, they were all just sitting on the shelf there. And I wanted to do something with that. And maybe more importantly, all those years, it had felt to me like I was kind of living, you know, these kind of two parallel lives that kind of were separate and and in this kind of funny way that you know there was my life at home in the United States where you know I'd be at my job doing family things doing the you know my regular climbing weekend trips and you know training and fitness stuff uh but then I'd go on an expedition and they seemed like different worlds when I left the United States on an expedition when I came back from the expedition it seemed like time picked up where I left off when I left and it 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 uh continued on that way and then expedition life was the same in this other kind of parallel universe where I would the next time I went on a trip like that it seemed like it just built in time off of when I was there before and so I never had time to think about well what did that mean you know what what were we really doing what was what did what was I thinking about? You know, it was just, just, I came back from those trips and my inbox was three feet high. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I wanted to have the opportunity to go back, you know, read through my old journals. I transcribed all of them and just started kind of putting those pieces of that puzzle together in a way where I had kind of more time to think about it and, and what it meant and what I learned. And, and then I learned a lot in the process of, of, about myself that I didn't know or hadn't thought about just through the process of writing the book. And it gave me real opportunity to, you know, develop a little bit more of that side of my brain and also to kind of, uh, you know, put the, all those adventures in kind of perspective with the rest of my life in a way that I just never had time to do before. Right. So if you were going to summarize the book uh, to someone who's never heard of it or someone who is about to read it, what what's the book about? I think there's probably, I, I would say there's three different themes to the book. Um, there's the climbing stories. Uh, there's also a, a pretty um, consistent 
theme through the book of sort of the history of the region, namely, uh, you know, how that region and how how we were impacted over, you know, the four decades of trips that I had to the region, you know, how we were impacted over time by the conflict between India and Pakistan over Kashmir and, and how that's manifested uh, in, in the Karakoram, which is part of Kashmir. So there's this, uh, it's kind of a South Asia 101 kind of runs through the book. So there's some good history in there. Uh, and then um, there's a little bit in there just kind of my, about my personal life, uh, maybe not as much as the other two themes, but um, you know, kind of talking a little bit about, um, you know, my family and kind of the work that I did and, and, and trying to balance all, all these things. Uh, I actually don't like using the word balance. I'd say more of a juggling act. (laughs) Uh. Balance would be, uh, would just be, uh, um, make it seem like there ever was a balance but it never seemed like it was totally in balance it always seems like you were just trying to catch the ball that was about ready to hit the ground yeah it's it's from the thing from what i've read it sounds like you have um an extremely um supportive and patient um partner and family oh absolutely um you know i've always been this way i was it's uh um, it wasn't something that I took up in the middle of, you know, being married uh, to Anne or anything. Um, it was part of the package. <laughs> it was part of the package. But uh, but having said that, um, Anne has just been incredibly supportive and, and understands that. I think what you said earlier in the interview is that, oh, you really had the bug. And, you know, I feel fortunate, you know, really in a way, you know, to to have something in my life that I, you know, really enjoy that much, you know, that really motivates me to, you know, structure my life and my fitness and things in ways that have um, inspired me to put as much work into it as I have, uh, to, and which has enabled me to experience some pretty incredible things. Right. Why? Well, I- I know you kind of joked about using the word, maybe not wanting to use the word balance, but on some level, I I do think that it's a, it is appropriate to use that word kind of for your life because, you know, the one thing that I just know in my own life and that I kind of learned about myself in my early years, like in my 20s when climbing was all that mattered to me, you know, I've seen it happen to people. It happened to me too where, when all you do is put everything into that one thing, there are going to be times in life where you feel a little bit empty if you don't have anything to balance that out or if you don't have anything to put your energy into when climbing isn't there. Um, And it seems like your family uh, has been a real anchor for you. It's an anchor, but it's also, I think that the more different kinds of experiences that you have in your life, you know, like um, that that fundamentally change you, you know, and something like these kind of climbs um, change you, you know, they you become a different person, you know, as a result of those kinds of experiences. But there's other kinds of things that, you know, that happen that, you, you know, that can happen in your life if you are open to it uh, that change you in, in equally fundamental ways, you know. Being a parent, you know, will do that. 
you know, being a, a wife or a husband, you know, will do that. Having a career, you know, that you care about and, you know, what you learn from, you know, trying to, you know, be successful in that will change you. And, you know, I, I sometimes run into young climbers who I get worried about because they think that they're they're so focused and you know on this one dimension and wanting to be very accomplished in what they're doing really quickly that I worry about them because because I think you know that can be dangerous um, it, you, you know you not that it's that it's ever safe I mean it, climbing is a dangerous thing but I think you can assume uh, more risk if you're kind of you know young and and you think you're going to live forever and and I did the same thing you know you're just sort of you know jumping in over your head you know um, it just things get more risky and I'm at that age where I can you know I can you know we can go out and and I and I could say to someone like that that you know when you get to be 97 years old and you're on your deathbed and thinking about your life there's only two things that are going to be important to you one of them is the quality of the relationships that you have you know did you have a lot of friends you know did did you put an effort into your friendships and those partnerships and that's going to be really important to you and the other thing is do you feel like you put the effort in in your life to be the kind of person that you wanted to be and and for me I've, I've always wanted to be a you know different dimensions to things that I could do or understand you know beyond just climbing and certainly you know my family and my career you know added tremendously to that in in ways that are they're as important to me as 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 the, the climbing part for sure you know or more important maybe I don't know if it's if it's so much of a balance or does it, if, if it's more of just wanting to be whole right that's a good way of putting it um, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, what's I want to just kind of finish up chatting about your book. I'm always interested to talk to people to people about um, the creative process of writing. And you had mentioned um, wanting to use a, I think, to quote you, a different part of your brain. Um, what was the creative process like for you? I mean, I can tell you personally, like I love to write, but goddamn, it's hard. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's a painful process for me. And you know, my background as an engineer, it's um, you know I did a lot of writing, but it was all technical writing, which is all about telling. And uh, creative nonfiction is is showing, not telling. That was really hard for me, you know, and I still struggle with that. I mean, that that, that that's a lifetime struggle. Is like, you know, and, and certainly is would be for me and developing that part of my brain where you use the storytelling to paint the picture as opposed to, of just sort of delivering the answer, you know, so that the reader can, you know, walk alongside you and kind of experience what you're experiencing alongside of you. I mean, that's really hard to do. Yeah, and, it's uh, really hard. And I can't say that I feel like I'm necessarily even that good at it. Um, I do like writing style, you know, when I'm reading a book. I like, I like writing that's pretty straightforward, you know, like I can, you know, get into the story and it's a page turner for me and I just right. go. Right. I really struggle with doing things like reading poetry. It's just too hard for me. I, yeah. I'm not smart enough to, <laughs> to sort of know what it means. And, and I don't like to, to, like when I'm reading books, if I have to read the same paragraph three times over again to kind of try to figure out what it meant, then, then I kind of 
start losing interest. Um, so, you know, my writing would be, you know, pretty straightforward in that way, but it's hard. Like you said, it's really hard. And I'm trying to think right now, you know, if I want to do more of it or not, uh, you know, because it is so painful and there's probably other things in the world I'm better at than this, than that. Um, so yeah, I'm still kind of trying to think of, it, it was a really good experience whether I do it, do more of it or not. I haven't decided yet. Right. What, like, what was your process? Like, how did you organize the writing? That's um, pretty easy to explain. I mean, I, I went, like I said earlier, that I transcribed all my old journals. And then what I did was I just read through the journals and I highlighted what I thought were all the best stories. Right. And then, and then you know, I organized it into chapters that were mostly structured around kind of different trips and different climbs, different expeditions. And I would pull all of the highlighted text out of those journals to be sort of the the rough 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 draft of of a chapter and then I would just start working from there and and that that seemed to work pretty well for me because I didn't have to start with a blank page right um it it just it's it was more of kind of this really transformative editing process it was you know i mean if you read the text that i started with and then the chapter was over when it was done had bore no similarity to each other except right. for maybe the facts but but probably no single sentence or words or anything were the same but it, it just gave me something to start with with ideas and uh something to build off of and and gave me a a structure to work with yeah the one thing that i've learned about writing and a kind of a theme that i've heard from other writers who are successful is that it's kind of like with anything. I mean, there, there's no avoiding that. There's just, you got to put in the work sometimes. It's like writing a song or doing a climb. It's like sometimes, very rarely, the stars align and things just come together and it just goes smoothly. But, you know, my experience is that 90% of the time, it's, it's a real trudge. It's a lot of work and, and you just got to be able to put the work in. Oh, I totally agree with that. You know, uh, Bernadette McDonald, you know, who lives here in the Bow Valley up in Banff in the winter, um, you know, who who I feel is like an excellent writer, has, you know, written a number of books about, you know, Polish climbers and wrote a really great book recently about Wojtek Kurtyka. And she's working on another book right now about uh, winter ascents of 8,000 meter peaks. And I was talking to her the other day and she says, oh, Steve, I'm working so hard. This. I'm on my 17th draft. Oh. And I mean, she, I just have so much respect for her and how she writes and, 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 and at the end of the day, you know, when I read her stuff, it's just so well done. And, and I know why, you know, it's because she just has the discipline to put that kind of time in to just keep working and reworking and working and reworking. And at some point, you know, probably the hardest thing for her at the end of the day is, she, is to let it go. Right. Uh, otherwise, she would just keep doing it. And and you have to really love it to, to really um, be willing to put that kind of time in to do it. And... I enjoy it, but but I kind of find that <laughs> that I enjoy it when um, I don't have anything else to do. <laughs> A little bit. Right. Right. It's kind right. of like right now. I mean, yesterday I started transcribing. Um, uh, my journals from from the three trips I took to Linksar, thinking, oh, maybe I'll do something with that someday. 
But the reason I started doing it is because we're in lockdown here because of the virus and it gave me something to do. If if I wasn't locked down here with the virus, I probably would have gone out climbing. And so you have to be willing to, you know, give up other parts of your life to put that kind of time in to do that just hard, hard work that you're talking about if you want to have it be that you really like it to be at the end. And, and that's why it's so, you know, like I'm like, hmm, do I ever want to do that again? Do I want to put in that kind of time? Cause, because that's what it takes. Right. Absolutely. So what what's important to you today in your life? Because you know your life's your life's cha- changed. You've been climbing for fifty years, and I'm sure that maybe what's important to you has changed over that time. I, you know, I think that to answer that question, maybe I've already answered it. Was uh, what I talked about after we climbed. You know, why Linksar was so satisfying to me. You know, um, you know, kind of you know, partnership that we had, the, you know, persistence, you know, it was like, you know, for me, it was my third attempt on the peak, you know, we were willing to fail and come back and come back and, and, you know, learn from our mistakes. And, and, and then, and then when it all came together, it came together in this way that um, I think reflected, you know, so much of that learning over all these years. And so for me, you know, every day is a school day, you know, you know, what can I continue to keep learning? And I'm not sure, you know, it's totally next for me. I don't think I probably have another Linksar in me because I'm 66 now. And those trips are three, four, five year projects. You know, by the time, you know, you make one or two attempts and you get permits and you get teams together when everyone can go. And then I'd be in my 70s. And I just don't, I just don't, you know, I, I know by at this point that, you know, probably by the time I'm in my 70s, I wouldn't really be strong enough to do something like that. I wouldn't be the kind of partner I would want to be. Um, I still would like to go to that part of the world and, you know, find some cool 6,000 meter peaks to climb and, you know, maybe going over and finding some of those and getting a list of things I want to still do in my life that would, would fit, you know, that what I feel like I can still do would be fun. Um, you know, maybe I'll do some more writing, you know, I'm not sure yet, but I think at the end of the day, we always have to stand back and say, like what I said earlier is, you know, the two most important things are going to be, you know, your relationships. And then did you put the work in to be the kind of person that you want to be? And so, you know, I feel like if I have that in mind with what, whatever I decide to do, you know, I'll be on the right path. And, but a little bit, you know, kind of at a crossroads right now, after, especially after the links are climbing. It's like, nah, I'm not going to do another one of those. It sounds like you've got options. And uh, the good news is it sounds like you've, like you've got your health and you're, you're staying strong and you're able to get out and do things like to be going out and climbing water ice six plus in the Rockies. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that, I feel so fortunate. I mean, really, I do have my health and, and, uh, I've, I've stayed pretty, pretty injury free. And, and, uh, um, so at least for now, knock on wood, you know, I can still get out and do stuff. And I'm really grateful for that. All right. Well, thanks for hanging out with me today. I hope you got as much out of Steve's stories as I did. And I hope you can apply some of his immense Alpine wisdom to your next trip in the mountains. You can learn more about Steve by reading one of the many online articles that exist about him and his career, 
And you can find his book, Karakorum, Climbing Through the Kashmir Conflict, online through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or any good place books are sold. Don't forget, if you want to support The Fernline, you can become a monthly subscriber over on Patreon. And speaking of Patreon, I want to give a huge shout out to Leo Franchi, who supports the show each month at the executive producer level. Thank you so much, Leo. And finally, if you enjoy the tunes you hear on this show, you can check out more of my music on Spotify, Apple Music, Bandcamp, and EvanPhillipsMusic.com. Until next time, I'm Evan Phillips, and this is The Fern Line. <laughs>